Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I was negotiating away the unborn baby's life. I mean, I thought like, let me do anything to keep my husband alive. Is there some like... Uh, deal I have to make with the universe in order for me to keep him alive. He, you know, was my soulmate and the person I wanted to be with. And I didn't have attachment to any child just yet. And so what I found during that process is that we were in it together, he and I, my late husband and myself. So we were having a lot of conversations around it, but I had to visit the worst case scenario and not live there. So I had to live in the present and not live in the, what's the worst thing that could happen? He could die, but not sitting there all the time allowed for us to almost utilize that two and a half years as this beautiful transformative time for not just the two of us, but ultimately the three of us. And I'm so grateful that I'm going to say he had the wisdom to guide us there and that I could go there with him. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Andrea, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Srini. It is my pleasure to have you here. So I was referred to you by Cher Hale, who I uh, basically consider the podcast whisperer of pitching guests for The Unmistakable Creative at this point, since she's the only person I've never said no to. Um, so, you know, she's just given us a steady stream of amazing guests. Uh, so no pressure at all. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Um, I wanted to start asking, what did your parents do for work and how did that end up influencing what you ended up doing with your life and career? That is such an interesting question. Um, I would say that my grandparents were the bigger, biggest influence, but my parents were sort of living the American dream. They uh, were the first, I'm, I'm, I come from Jewish descent, so they were the first generation to really make money in a different way and live a middle-class life. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a salesman. But my grandparents were more intellectuals and they were musicians and they spent all of their summers. They bought a little cottage in the Berkshires, which is where the Boston Symphony spends their time. And so I grew up spending every summer with my grandparents, their friends, some of whom were Holocaust survivors. So they really engaged in the joy of life. And my peers, parents, were in the symphony. And so I, I can actually remember the day I was maybe 13 or 14 walking back from the lake to my grandparents' cottage and thinking, wait a minute, my friend's parents do what they love for a living because that was not what I was exposed to with my own nuclear family. Yeah. <clears throat> Did you play any instruments yourself? 
I did. I played the violin um, from when I was six until I was went to college, and then it sort of petered out in favor of other creative pursuits. No, well, the the reason I ask is as a former band geek who you know pretty much dedicated <laughs> my life to band, I know that it had a profound impact. You know, almost twenty plus years later, what I learned from pursuing an instrument, you know, it has been instrumental to all of my sort of creative habits and discipline. And I'm curious, what are the lessons that you learned from playing the violin that influenced your life later on? Mm, that's such a great question too. I, I will say that I was torn between my creative pursuits as a child. So I was more of a visual artist. And for me, that's what really spoke to me. The violin and the music was more handed down from my family. It was sort of expected of me. So there was a little bit of a yes, but a pushback there. And I also took dance lessons. So I was a child who was immersed in the arts. And there was one that spoke to me the most, which was the visual arts. But I will say that practicing and learning to practice and continuing to put in the effort, what I like to think of in business as persistence and perseverance, which are the last two P's in my 5P model, that that persistence and perseverance taught me that you're going to mess up and it's going to be okay. And you stand back up and you go at it again and it's not going to sound perfect. And who's witnessing that and how are you beating yourself up more than others? So I would say that all of the forms of art taught me to kind of publicly mess up and be okay with it. Um, you know, it's funny because one of the most common fears that I came across when I did, uh, you know, some research when I surveyed our audience about people's biggest fears when it came to their own creative work was the fear of public opinion. And yeah. I saw that over and over. And, and I just, to me, you know, I think part of the reason I've internalized this lesson is because I've done this for so long. And I said, look, the reality of doing anything in public is one, you're going to mess up and two, somebody's going to hate what you created. You cannot avoid that, but yet that paralyzes so many people. Um, why do you think that is? And more importantly, how do they get past that sort of fear of public opinion that keeps them from doing this thing that they deep down apparently want to do? Yeah, it's it was really interesting for me when I started to write because I was coming from the visual arts and my undergraduate degree is a BFA. So I studied art and design. And so for me, I was, are we cursing on the spot? Can we curse? Yeah. <laughs> They're good. So I was used to putting my shit on the wall, right? Like you put it on the wall, your stuff is outside across the room and it is going to be critiqued. And when I started writing as a young adult and kind of translating my art to the realm of the page, I was really taken by how timid writers can be in sharing their work. Because for me, I had been trained to recognize that public failure as part of the process and not meaning more than some feedback that I would take in, determine what I thought about that feedback, whether I wanted to believe in it or not, and move forward again. So I think it takes practice and the internal belief in what you're doing and the recognition that you're going to get it wrong and it's not going to resonate. And there's messages in the lack of resonance as well as in the resonance. There, yeah. It's all positive part of the process. Mm. You know, I think there's something that you said earlier that really kind of struck me and stood out where you said, you know, you hung out with your grandparents, friends uh, who you got to see doing something that they absolutely loved, which was, you know, working as performing musicians. And by contrast, you said your nuclear family was kind of the opposite. And I know from having had enough Jewish guests here on the show that the narrative of how to make your way in the world as a Jewish kid is pretty much identical to the one about making your way in the world as an Indian kid, which is doctor, lawyer, True. engineer. And I think it was Daniel Levitin. Daniel, uh, yeah, Daniel Levitin told me, he said, you know, there's this joke that J Jewish people have where somebody is a vice president and his mother is sitting in the audience at the inauguration. She's like, there's my son. You know, he could have been a doctor, right? 
right. I mean, that's what my mom says. Like, she's kind of like a doctor. She's a functional nutritionist, but she's kind of like a doctor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what, what was the narrative about making your way in the world when you grew up from your parents? Yeah. Well, I'm in my mid fifties. So two girls in the family, different expectations at the time in certain ways. And, um, for me as a child who was always creative, it was that I had to do something practical with my creative interests. So I, um, had to go to design school or architecture school, not to art school. So the narrative was that it had to be career focused, which, you know, makes sense, not just from where they were coming from in their lifetime, but also that they wanted to make sure that I wasn't just exploring something in college that was going to catapult me out into a world of the unknown, because that would have been uncomfortable for them, right? But it was all about the practicality of what was clearly my inclinations. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that. I You may have seen this. It, it was making its way around Twitter uh, sometime last week. There was a list of uh, all the Indians who are CEOs of companies right now. And the list is enormous. It's like 50 different companies. I, I think it's like Twitter, Google, Microsoft are on that list. And I started sort of writing about why there are so many Indian CEOs. And and one of the things that I said is that, you know, you might think that the way that these Indian parents raise their kids to be practical is harsh and rigid until you understand the context from which that worldview is formed, which is that they grew up in a situation where their life outcomes were binary. It was either poverty or security. And I wonder if that was similar for you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just like I said, my parents were sort of this first generation of the American dream. They could make it. They could have what might have been considered a little bit more of a disposable income than my grandparents who lived through the Depression, right? My grandfather had to sell his violin to survive and to feed himself and his family, right? So just a difference in that perspective of what is your education for. And, you know, I joke about this with my boyfriend often who comes from a different background where he's the first one in his family to have not just a college degree, but an MBA. And in my family, you know, my grandparents went to college. So there's a different educational background, but also economic background associated with that. And he still has expectations of his young adult children that they go to college for something that is a career on the other side. Whereas my son, who's 21, goes to a liberal arts school because my thinking from a place of a different kind of privilege than the previous generation is this is the last time you get to really engage in deep thinking and you're a deep thinker, go get your deep thinking on. If you can think and you can write, you'll be able to do anything. I trust in that. But those are two different mindsets coming from kind of different backgrounds and privilege on my part at this point. Yeah, I, I appreciate you sort of acknowledging the privilege in that, because I think that that's something that I just became hyper aware of over the last probably five or six years is getting to see sort of what a privileged background that I came from, especially after talking to people on the show who had been incarcerated and listening to, you know, the environments they had to survive. But there's something else that's really interesting about your sort of narrative about careers. On the one hand, you have grandparents who are musicians doing what they love, and then you have parents who are the exact opposite of that. How the hell did that happen? Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. 
Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, so my grandparents were music lovers, but they weren't the symphony members. They were surrounding themselves with symphony members. So my friend, my peers, parents were symphony members. So that was an exposure to me that I got because my grandparents took their life-saving and bought a tiny little cottage where my grandfather could volunteer as a usher and listen to the music all the time, right? So they were musicians just as a hobby. For them, it was a passion, but they weren't being paid to be musicians. Um, And I think there just was a desire for a different kind of lifestyle in that next generation that was my parents' generation. Yeah, absolutely. So how in the world do you get from art school to functional nutrition? (laughs) That's a good question. So I got from art school to a kind of disillusion with design and art school. And I'll just back up and say I did study industrial design at Carnegie Mellon University. And in my junior year, I started to feel like I wasn't getting enough of the context for design. So I started to realize as industrial designers, we're creating the artifacts that not only shape society, but let us look back on societies and determine things about them. And we're not thinking about it. We're just making stuff. And so that led me to want to break out of that environment. And I myself left that environment in my, what would have been my senior year of college to go to a liberal arts school, a small liberal arts school where I would be immersed in some deeper thinking. When I went back to finish my degree, I finished in the art department because I realized I no longer wanted to be making uh, stuff like that from the design perspective, whether it was sneakers or ATMs or, you know, airplanes or whatever it might be. And that transitioned over time to the realm of writing because I realized I the art world was pretty elitist and I didn't want to be making stuff that wasn't, people weren't interacting with it on a larger scale. 
Then we come to my own health challenges. And ultimately, my husband was diagnosed with a very aggressive brain tumor in April of 2000, when I was just seven weeks pregnant with our one and only child. So my little interests in food and cooking in the Bay Area and having, you know, elaborate dinner parties and shopping at the farmer's market turned into a pursuit of what we could do to shape some of the outcomes of his trajectory. At the time, he was given six months to live, and we were able to extend his life to about two and a half years. But um, for me, it was, what can we do? What are the factors of influence that we have in this horrific outcome that we've been given? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was one thing that really struck me when I was just going, you know, through my research and reading your about page. And I wonder when you realize that what you had imagined to be a future uh, is going to disappear before your eyes. Like, what does that do to your sense of identity? Because I've had friends who've been divorced, and they say that you know you have sort of this idea of what your life is going to look like when you get married. Yeah, and you see 30 years into the future and it suddenly just vanishes. And in your case, you you have it vanish along with this incredibly tragic thing, in addition to the fact that you're going to raise a child without his father in his life. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's an ongoing process. And I think there's some ways in which it never ends. You know, I wonder about when my son falls in love and when and if he gets married, you know, there's all of those moments along the way. In that moment, I was negotiating away the unborn baby's life. I mean, I thought, like, let me do anything to keep my husband alive. Is there some like uh, deal I have to make with the universe in order for me to keep him alive. He, you know, was my soulmate and the person I wanted to be with. And I didn't have attachment to any child just yet. And so what I found during that process is that we were in it together, he and I, my late husband and myself. So we were having a lot of conversations around it, but I had to visit the worst case scenario and not live there. So I had to live in the present and not live in the, what's the worst thing that could happen? He could die, but not sitting there all the time allowed for us to almost utilize that two and a half years as this beautiful transformative time for not just the two of us, but ultimately the three of us. And I'm so grateful that I'm going to say he had the wisdom to guide us there and that I could go there with him. I guess the the follow-up to that is how old was your son when you first had conversations with him about the fact that his father had passed away before he was born? And what, you know, how, what was the understanding of that? Because I, I can't imagine sort of how strange that must be, especially as a kid when you kind of have a concept of death, yet it's somebody you also have never met. Yeah, he did meet him. So he, uh, my husband, Isamu, died when Gilbert, our son, was 19 months old. So wow. we did have a that two and a half, you know, we had that two and a half years with Isamu, some of which was pregnancy and some of which was the first year of, of Gilbert's life. So his father had the opportunity and you know, an opportunity for Gilbert too to have that impression mm-hmm. on him. So he knew the love and he can look back at pictures of the two of them. And it was a time in his life, a, you know, a year and a half, 19 months that uh, he couldn't, he doesn't, he doesn't miss his father in his life. He right. doesn't remember anything different, but he knows His father loved him and there's pictures. I made a little booklet for him as a, as a little toddler that would hang on the side of his bed that he could flip through that were all pictures of him being held by his dad, playing music with his dad. So there is an impression that he has of that time. And I think I filled in the gaps 
pretty good <laughs> that uh, he doesn't miss. He doesn't feel that missing of the person. Yeah. Um, and we have a pretty tight relationship in terms of how we operate as a little mini family. Right. So it was always a part of the conversation and continues to be a part of our conversation. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm just kind of trying to imagine the age at which he starts asking, you know, sort of deeper questions about this as opposed to sort of having, you know, just a sort of impression that he was there. Because to your point, I mean, I think when you're one and a half, you know, I, most of us don't have any memory of being Correct. that age. Uh, but uh, so one thing that you say on your actual bio is that I knew I had a choice to let this tragedy define my life in a purely negative way or to find opportunities hidden within. I became determined to understand the mechanisms that led to chronic disease, to understand how and why the body reacts as it does, and to discern the aptitude that we have to unlock our healing potential using the keys that nutrition, nutrition can provide, all of which we will get into. But I want to start with the ability to sort of look for opportunities within why is it you think you had the response that you did and other people are completely destroyed by something like this? Yeah, it's a great question in terms of the why. And I think about it a lot just in terms of human resilience and who we are as people. I, the story I will tell myself is that, uh, Isamu, my late husband, prepared me to be ready <laughs> for the occurrence of his death, not overtly in that we were talking about it all the time because we weren't, but in his belief of me and his confidence in me, I was able to flourish inside of that relationship. And I'm sure that it's in me. So one of the things I would tell myself, Srini, is that I used to find myself saying, but I was my best self with him. And then I would turn that and recognize if I was my best self with him, that best self is me, is in me. So how do I take that mirror that I was given in this beautiful relationship that only got to exist for under a decade and be that person for myself, for my son, and for, you know, whoever I can be, who I, whoever I can touch. And so I think there's a matter of resilience in there that may be um, part of my dopey personality. <laughs> I don't know what it comes down to, but it really is connecting with a deeper passion and purpose. And there were things I experienced through his illness that really struck me as things I didn't want to see happen in healthcare and recognizing that nugget and letting it lead me forward as something bigger than me, something I wanted to be in service to instead of being subject to the pain alone. Uh, one sort of final question about this, and then we'll get into this entire concept of functional nutrition. When you form sort of new romantic relationships after an experience like that, I mean, how do you sort of, you know, at the simultaneously, you know, maintain the integrity of this, you know, love of your life while starting in a relationship with somebody else? Yeah, I, I kind of love talking about this and I don't get the opportunity to talk about it much. So I'm glad you asked. It took me a long time to want to even pursue another romantic relationship because, you know, I was a little busy. I was a single mom. I was working full time in book publishing. Then I started putting myself back through school to study nutrition, then started a business. You know, I was I was busy. But at this point, being in a romantic relationship, for me, the beauty is that I get to rewrite the script. We are coming in as more fully formed people. We don't need to live together. We're not financially reliant on each other. And we don't need it to look like marriage, raising children. None of that needs to be a part of the equation and that's been a real blessing in the relationship that I'm in, that we're on the same page there. Neither of us needs 
some of the typical trappings of what an earlier relationship might be. And that gives me room to make them very distinct from each other. We're in a very committed, non-monogamous, rela- <laughs> sorry, monogamous relationship. I meant to say it's not non-monogamous, a monogamous relationship. And we live 40 minutes away from each other and see each other once or twice a week. And, um, you know, are only tangentially involved in each other's families and kids' lives. And that feels right at this stage and very distinct from the life I was creating that had that future hope that you were referring to with my late husband. Mm, wow. Well, let's get into this whole concept of functional medicine, uh, because I think that, you know, when I look at functional nutrition, just from looking at your about page, I think about my experiences with Western medicine and how it seems, you know, much more reactive than preventative, uh, you know, like I got diagnosed with a really just awful case of IBS when I got out of school or right after college. And it took 10 years for me to make this connection that surfing of all things was the thing that made it go away. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the strangest thing. Cause I still remember to this day, the first time I got out of the water on the beach in Brazil thinking, wait a minute, I haven't felt like this since before the IBS diagnosis. So what the hell is going on there? Like what is happening in our bodies and why is it that Western medicine has been so focused on sort of treating symptoms as opposed to looking at root causes? Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. 
That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, and I think of this as the three roots and the many branches, right? Any sign, symptom, or diagnosis is a branch. And um, if we think of a, the analogy of a tree, it's the branch of a tree, and we need to ask why. Why is this happening? And the why is multifactorial. It's about your history and your childhood and your ancestors and the triggers that have happened in your life and in your ancestors' lives as well. In addition to the things that you do each and every day that either help you to feel better or make you feel worse as you identify it. And I remember distinctly hearing you tell that that story um, on a podcast many, many years ago and just being really moved by that connection that you were able to make for yourself. And understanding those connections is our superpower as patients. And I'm going to say we're all patients at some point or another. And we're hidden, those are hidden from us because we don't understand what's going on in our own bodies, when it happens, why it might be happening, where the connections are. So for me, I think we have a great medical system that has a lot of gaps because there is a time and a place for addressing the branch. And that's acute care medicine. We need to be able to have those interventions. If you've cut a limb, you want it to be addressed. If you have cancer and there's a treatment that involves uh, medicine and pharmaceuticals, we want it to be addressed. And there are plenty of chronic health conditions, more and more, they're on the rise, that are not served by an acute care medicine model. And this is where we have to start paying attention to a different way of thinking into the case. And so functional medicine in its best form should pay heed to three primary tenants. And those are a therapeutic partnership where the patient is a partner in their care, looking for those root causes and a systems-based approach. And that systems-based approach is twofold in my mind. It's both reliant on systems biology, which helps us understand those connections between the gut and the brain and the gut and the hormones and the detoxification and the hormones, all of the internal connections were not a bunch of ologies, but also I'm a lover of mental models and mental models help us to think into really complex problems and chronic conditions are complex problems that are not being served by a model of care that's meant to just place a Band-Aid on things. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this idea of sort of a mental model uh, and systems for understanding your own body uh, and how everything works together. Because, uh, you know, I know that you have this diagram on your website of the full body system. So how how do we use this? Um, to do something, let, let's make this practical, like to understand how our bodies you know, react and respond to different 
stimuli, whether that be food, whether that be the kind of work that we do, whether that be, you know, emotional experiences. Yeah, it's it's first and foremost, backing up even a little bit further. And I have three models that I really like to rely on. And I'll just speak into two of them here. And I want to say that for people who are just looking to get healthy or in the preventative realm, this is probably too hard work to do. It's really not the thinking that anyone wants to apply unless they're being held back by their signs, their symptoms, or their diagnosis or diagnoses. So it's slowing it down to speed it up. It's really understanding, you know, if we think through mental models, first principle thinking, what's the essence that I'm really getting to here? So the functional nutrition matrix, which is based off the Institute for Functional Medicine's matrix, is a tool that I like to get into the hands of the patient. And through that, we understand what I like to think of as our story, our soup, and our skill. And our story are our antecedents. That's anything we know about our ancestors or our parents' health history, our triggers, things that have happened throughout our lives, whether it's stress from school or starting a job or food poisoning or a COVID diagnosis that's lingering or any other infection, anything that we might think of as a trigger, uh, you know, dental work, it was different after than it was before. Those are triggers through our lives. And triggers can go back to our childhood. There's more and more research that's pretty solidified that adverse childhood experiences are correlated to higher incidences of chronic disease states, particularly autoimmunity. So we look at our triggers and understand them. And our mediators, and these are the ATMs in the story area of the matrix, antecedents, triggers, and mediators, our mediators are those things that help us feel better or make us feel worse. And again, once we can identify those for ourselves and create a larger and larger list of those, we start to be able to have more influence on how we feel and ultimately our health outcomes. So that's the story. And I believe that we're often looking for resolve with our health issues without understanding that there were myriad facts that got us to this point. This point is just a tipping point. A diagnosis is just a tipping point. What are all the factors that led me to this tipping point? And when we understand that, we start to take more ownership. We start to have more agency and be a better partner in our healthcare. The soup in the center part of the matrix is understanding those biological connections, really recognizing this is the whole picture of how I'm feeling and the symptoms that I'm experiencing. And this is how they map. I can start to categorize them in simple ways that help me, again, back to first principle thinking, when we can categorize things, we understand them better. And we it's not just a confluence of a challenge, it becomes things we can start to address one by one or realize some of those connections. And the right side of the matrix, the skills, is connected to those mediators. What do I do now? What are my non-negotiables that I have defined for myself that support me? For instance, I have to keep a pretty strict bedtime. Otherwise, I'm not going to get good sleep and I'm not going to be my best self the next day. And it's just not worth it. And so I keep a specific bedtime to ensure that I'm taking care of myself. And that goes down from everything, sleep and relaxation, exercise and movement, nutrition and hydration, stress and resilience, relationships and networks. And it's not about being perfect. It's about slowly turning the dial and recognizing here's what I'm already doing for myself and here's where I'm going to take a next step forward. I think we live in a time where everybody thinks there's some perfect way to eat or 
the keto diet or intermittent <laughs> fasting. It's going to solve you everything. Right? Up my next question. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. That's literally where I was headed next. So go for it. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think that the thing that strikes me most about this model that you're describing is that it's one holistic and two incredibly personal um, yes. versus like you said, the, the keto diet, because like, I always you know, joke with my old roommate, Matt, and it's like, dude, you go hear some influential person tell you about some bullshit diet. And next thing you know, we're basically on this diet. And I still remember that his, I said, you are impulsive when it comes to your diet and it's nonsense. His parents yeah. are like, Matt's diet changes every time he comes home. And he's like, that's <laughs> bullshit. I'm like, I live with you. That's not bullshit at all. <laughs> Your diet changes every time you learn something new. I, and I still to this day never forgot. We were watching some documentary on Netflix about eating a plant-based diet. And there was this girl in Boulder who was cooking for us, you know, uh, like preparing our meals. And he just texts her immediately afterwards and says, hey, Carly, can we change our entire meal plan to plant-based? And she lost her <laughs> shit naturally uh, because, you know, she'd already bought all the ingredients. And he thought her reaction was unjustified. And I was like, uh, dude, just let's think about this from her perspective. She just bought all the damn ingredients, prepared everything and is getting ready to make the meals. And you want to change the entire thing? Of course, she's pissed off. But the, the point being that, you know, the reason I'm bringing up that story in particular is that there's so much of this sort of one sized fits all approach to particularly to health where, you know, I won't call out any names because some of these people have even been our own guests where there's a sort of one sized approach where somebody uses themselves as the sample size, you right. know, a sample size of one to basically peddle what it turns out often are bullshit diets or just bullshit health advice because the same advice that royally like fucks up one person's life make make another thrive. That's true for prescriptive advice. And I'm finding yes. more and more, this is true for health. So for example, the sort of universal don't eat carbs, like when you grow up in an Indian family, if you don't eat carbs, you literally are going <laughs> to starve to death. We tried this once at my house. It was not effective. And then my mom tried to make these gluten-free rotis and they were terrible. And then she said, what did you expect? You know, They were going to be shit no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. There is no one size fits all for various reasons that have to do with thinking holistically. And I love what you're recognizing because it's so frustrating for me that everybody's looking for these quick fixes so much that they're adopting things that are potentially damaging for their body and their mind, right? Because they're under, they're not understanding why is this not working for me? If we look at keto as an example, I mean, not only is it being used inappropriately based on the research, you know, it's not, the research isn't about weight loss. The research is about neurological issues, but we're seeing people who, you know, potentially don't have gallbladders or have issue with fat digestion going on a keto diet and doing more damage to their body because they can't process the amount of fats or even the amount of proteins that they're then shifting into undesirable chemical activity in their body. And this is what happens when we are basing our ideas on the next influencer or the next influential idea. And what I'm seeing is that there are people either still stuck in these ideas that there's one way to eat or one test we should follow that tells us how we eat, or they're basically like, screw it. All diet and nutrition has messed me up and I don't want anything to do with it. And the truth exists somewhere in the middle and needs to be highly personalized because as you inferred, one person's food can be another person's poison for myriad physiological reasons. And when we overlook that reality, we're ignoring the truth of the body and how it works, how it functions. I, that, that quote right there, one person's food can be another person's poison. I need to share that with Matt. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. I can't imagine what you go through when the diet changes all the time too. Oh, well, I don't live with him anymore. So okay. <laughs> fortunately that's not the case, but I, I also want to make sure that, you know, 
I mean, just in my own mind, you know, there's this temptation to be great. Andrea has given me license to eat whatever the fuck I want, which I know is not true. Correct. Not true because we need to know you. Right. So I I think people either assume that I'm going to tell them not to eat sugar, gluten and dairy because those are inflammatory foods, which I believe they are inflammatory foods, but how each person processes those foods and what it does to them becomes your relationship with risk and reward. So Srini, I'm less interested in you believing what I tell you to eat than you tapping into your understanding (laughs) of what you eat. And that's part of the problem. We're basing our everyday decisions on dogma that isn't tuning in to our very own bodies and their messages and mechanisms. Wow. Okay. So, you know, you kind of gave us this framework to think about um, in terms of food. And I'm just kind of thinking about this in terms of, you know, how this affects performance, because the ongoing joke is that if I'm going to listen to anybody's advice, it has to like impact my performance in a way that's positive. You know, people always just say, it's like, I had a friend who used to say, it's like, why meditate mainly because it's going to lead to flow. It's going to cause us to make more money and (laughs) accomplish something. Like literally it's like, what is this going to allow me to accomplish? that I can't is always sort of the driver behind every, you know, idea that we're, we're thinking about and exposed to as we jokingly say, but realistically, you know, as somebody who has ADD, you know, you mentioned things that you need to do. One of the reasons I don't do meetings uh, from seven to 10 in the morning is because if I do, the rest of the day is very difficult for me. Like I cannot get back to what I was focusing on. So Let's talk about it in the context of sort of something that everybody is wrestling with today, which is distraction and productivity and all that other craziness, because I feel like, you know, we're basically addicted to productivity porn, which paradoxically is making us unproductive. Yeah. So again, this comes back to the idea of risk and reward. And if the reward is productivity, what are we willing to put up with for that productivity, right? So if the risk of having meetings early in the morning or being on social media late at night impacts your productivity and productivity is so important to you, you're going to curb those behaviors in order to support your productivity. And it's just the deeper understanding of each of those times that we're in the risk or the reward. And the thing that's funky with food, many things are, but that we sometimes move from a place of victimhood and deprivation. So if we're to say that if you're eating, let's say, uh, a diet that's too high in carbs or sugars or gluten or whatever it is that you happen to be responsive to in your body, that we tell ourselves a story about how we get to, that we deserve it that it's not actually making a difference. And it's just understanding where we're coming from. I'm going to use the word uh, a victim story. I don't love that word, but versus an accountability story. And that takes time and tuning in. So there is a tremendous amount of connection between the brain and the gut, the brain and the immune system, the brain and detoxification, the brain and oxidative stress. So to be in our best performance, the body needs to be in a kind of humming state. The body is a vessel that allows us to step into purpose. And when we're experiencing signs, symptoms, brain fog, fatigue, we can't be in that higher purpose because there's too much distraction. And it's a constant balancing act. It's not a one and done. If we're under more stress, things that worked yesterday may not work today. If we lost sleep, things that may work yesterday don't work today. If we're on vacation, things may feel fine that don't feel fine in our everyday lives. And it's just that... um tuning in without it being obsessive. I like to think of it as uh, as a nonviolent communication with self. So if we think about the history of nonviolent communication in partnerships, we're actually listening. We're tuned in. We're not always trying to fix somebody or silence somebody, but we're tuned in. And most people don't even know what IBS 
like, what does that actually mean? It's just an umbrella term that tells you you have an undiagnosed digestive issue. What is other thing? What are mental health uh, diagnoses mean? They mean that there's something going on deeper that we could be tuned into. So I don't know if that answers your question, but for me, the reward of the productivity comes with the risk of tuning in, of paying attention, which is actually its own reward if we shift our perspective on it. So, you know, it's funny because I'm trying to figure out how I would summarize our conversation in the title of the episode. And it sounds to me like what this is really about is developing a awareness of how the systems in your body function. Yeah, the systems in your body, or if that's not of interest to you, just tuning in that you know yourself, you know your story. This journey is yours. Every single thing that happens to you is part of your story. I'm interested in bringing the story, each of our stories, back to healthcare, that self-health is about your story. So even if I'm not asking you to understand like psychoneuroimmunology and the connections, I am asking you to recognize your connections to your past and how you feel now and when things have started in your life and how they've progressed and really just diving into making your health journey about the Oh, me versus the why me, which sounds a little trite, but I think when we're experiencing signs, symptoms, or diagnosis, we know quick, we go quickly to the why is this happening to me? And there are reasons. And I'm not saying that the reasons are something you've done to yourself. I'm saying the reasons are multifactorial and there are many things that have led you to the moment that you're facing today. Mm, wow. So this is just a, a silly question out of morbid curiosity. You know, we're talking about sort of IBS as a sort of jump off point for this. But I think there was one thing that always struck me. And I remember using this in a newsletter that had nothing to do with IBS. It was about sort of looking at root causes of productivity issues where I always said it, it shocked me that a doctor would prescribe medicine and I'd see the commercial on TV and they would say, you know, this is medication for IBS. And, it, you know, the small disclaimer at the end would be like may cause constipation diarrhea and nausea and cramps i'm like wait a minute how the fuck is that possible isn't that the thing it's supposed to cure exactly exactly yeah and it's just i mean it's the, the most prescribed medication is a proton pump inhibitor which lowers stomach acid most of us don't have enough stomach acid so we're actually exacerbating the underlying problem in favor of dealing with the symptom and we're not seeing that it's going to lead to other problems down the line, like our ability to digest and utilize our proteins, which helps with our brain health, right? So it's those lack of, it's the lack of connection and the band-aid approach that is leading to uh, polypharmacy so that we are then chasing symptoms. Okay, I take that IBS medication and now I need two other medications and now I can't sleep and now I'm pooping my pants on the subway, whatever it is, we are chasing the fix that doesn't exist without us looking deeper at those roots. Yeah. So this is just a random question out of, of morbid curiosity. I was trying to kind of trace back, you know, what changed between sort of college or post-college when the IBS started and high school and I didn't have it. And you may not know this, but one of the things that South Indians do uh, with their meals is that we have yogurt and rice every night mm -hmm. after, you know, the first two sort of dishes. And, you know, part of that, like they would say, this kind of cools down your stomach. And of course, I realized yogurt has all these, you know, things that help with digestion. And I've always wondered if the fact that I had stopped eating yogurt and rice consistently was one of the things that made things worse. Yeah, your, pro your diet probably changed pretty significantly when you went to college because of who was cooking for you or not. But yes, absolutely. We need to think about the microbial terrain. And micro microbial terrain isn't just about fermented foods. There's other kinds of foods, fibers, short-chain fatty acids, resistant starches, uh, polyphenols. There's foods that 
feed our microbial terrain. And there's a tremendous connection between the microbiome in the gut and the microbiome in the brain. So back to productivity. But yes, it could definitely be one of the factors that was a change in your diet that uh, became a trigger for you to experience symptoms. Wow. So, you know, I want to finish this up by talking about sort of the positive changes that you start to see in people's lives um, when they start to take this kind of approach to their health and nutrition as opposed to let me try, you know, the bulletproof diet or the keto diet or all these other diets that, you know, make for great best-selling books, but honestly are one-size-fits-all solutions based on sample sizes of one. Yeah. I mean, hopefully this makes for a best-selling book too. <laughs> But I do sometimes think like, am I speaking in tongues? Because nobody nobody really wants to do the work until they have to do the work. So my audience, my real, uh, you know, desirable client base in our clinic, in, you know, the thousands of practitioners that I train and in the work that I'm doing now, that's back to working with a, a case study group for my book is for people who have been there and done that. So they've tried all the things and they're frustrated. They're so frustrated because they're not getting better. And what we start to see is that, first of all, there's relief that somebody is finally looking at them as a whole. And this goes back, Trini, to, you know, watching my husband go through his diagnosis and be treated like his diagnosis. He was a man who was a husband and a lover and a father to be and a brother and a son and a software developer and all the things, but he was treated like a walking dead man because he was treated like his diagnosis. And that's the care that we receive. And we think it's going to help us. Once I know my diagnosis, somebody will know what to do. That's not the case. So the first thing I see that people appreciate is being seen and heard for who they are, the frustrations that they have, and having somebody in the weeds with them, helping them to understand what are those little distinctions? Oh my gosh, I feel better when I go surfing. Let's make those connections for you so you can anchor that. And even if you can't surf all the time, you can do the other things that will be supportive. So awareness and recognition of who you are as a human is first and foremost. And then when we slow it down and start helping people to make associations and make incremental changes, we really do see, uh, you know, lowering of, of numbers or markers that were difficult for them that they were trying to manage with their pharmaceuticals, reduction or elimination of symptoms altogether. One of my favorite stories I like to tell was when I was working with a uh, patient who was who had MS, multiple sclerosis, and we did a tremendous amount of work where we ultimately got her neurologist to eliminate her medication because we were able to identify the symptoms it was causing based on our tracking. But then it came to a certain point where he couldn't even diagnose it as multiple sclerosis anymore because she didn't have the signs that usually lead to that diagnosis. And we were able to do that. I mean, she worked her tail off, but we were able to do that with diet and lifestyle modification and nutrition support. And that's not a promise for everybody in that in a similar situation, but there are opportunities to shift the terrain in which the signs, symptoms, and diagnoses exist. And that's the soil that those roots live in. When we focus there, we do see a difference. Wow. Beautiful. Well, I have one final question, which I know uh, you have heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think we're all unmistakable. And I think it's the tuning in to each and every person's essence of who they are and what they bring forward that allows us to see their unmistakable creativity and witness it. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, and everything that you're up to? 
Yeah, if you head on over to andreanakayama.com, that's lots of A's, all A's there, andreanakayama.com, you will be led to the training through the Functional Nutrition Alliance, the company I founded, and my podcast, The 15-Minute Matrix, and any of my writing or work that I'm doing independent. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.